Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to this bonus episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Last time around, I interviewed Philip Duff on the logistical and economic forces that affect scaling a bar brand from one to multiple locations. So if you haven't already enjoyed that show, I'd highly recommend that you go check it out. One of the best things about Philip is, of course, his breadth of experience in the bar world, which is due in large part to how many different markets he's historically lived and worked in, as well as how prolifically he travels in the present day. I think between the release of our last installment and the publication of this one, he's been to at least four different countries, just to put that in perspective. As someone with a deep knowledge of other dining and drinking cultures, I was dying to bend Philip's ear on the changes in tipping culture and the recent legislation that's transformed the nature of the tipped minimum wage in my home market here in Washington, D.C. For many of you, this might feel like it's a bit too much in the weeds, and that's okay. That's why I'm calling this a bonus episode. But if you are jazzed up by this subject matter and you'd like more of a structured deep dive on the topic... I'd encourage you to check out episodes 249 and 250, which represent a two-part audio essay. We'll return next time with a fantastic interview with Amanda Schuster about her new book, Signature Cocktails, which explores how, where, and why these iconic drinks tend to arise, as well as how to design one for your own bar or home cocktail lounge. But for now, please enjoy this bonus episode on tipping cultures foreign and domestic with bar consultant, spirits expert, and fellow podcaster, Philip stuff. Let's kind of shift our focus now to incentives, right? Because I feel like, you know, that that flows logically from training. And one of the things that fascinates me about your time at Fridays was the uh, the poor tests. So I'm wondering if you can describe poor tests to our listeners, and maybe that will segue us into a conversation of, you know, compensation models, perhaps some perverse incentives, tipping service charges, but uh, let's, let's start easy with the, the poor test example. I like the way you say poor test as if you're saying, granddad, tell us about the gramophone. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have a wax disc? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Something I'd like to point out is that skills wise, we've actually gone, we are going through a dark ages in bartending, we reached a really high point in the uh, late 1990s, let's say around 2000, where you had flare bars and flare bartending being really, really popular. Cocktails, the new cocktail thing hadn't really taken off in the US yet. And there were competitions like Quest for the Best and Legends of Las Vegas, where, okay, there was a flare portion, and we can talk about it later if you want to, but there were speed rounds and pour tests that would make your jaw drop. I mean, we, we, collectively, the industry perfected speed rounds. And then we fucking forgot about it, right? We have lost that. I could go to any USBG meeting anywhere in the country and throw a rock. And I guarantee you, I wouldn't hit someone who could equal my pour test right now. If I went in cold, not having poured seriously in probably 20 years, I guarantee you I'd ace those people. And I guarantee 
my free pour would be more accurate than their jigger because it's not like jiggers are magical either. Right. Now, let me interrupt you here. When when you were, what was the kind of hardware you were using for this? Can you describe the literal aperture that was attached to the bottle, if any? Yes, uh, there, was a, there was only one. It was the Spillstop 28550 Portspout. Uh, they were all made in factories in South Korea. They became the standard for the industry. Uh, there were lots of knockoffs, but the Spillstop itself was a superior product. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, and Proceed. the... Um, <laughs> What's now used, there used to be, I don't even know if they still make it, the pour tester, but there's a thing called a pour check, which is a little gra uh, graduated cylinder and a, a wider mouth. And essentially, a pour test is you do seven pours, so quarter ounce, half ounce, three quarters, one, one and a quarter, one and a half, two ounces. And you pour them with the left hand and the right hand. Right, not simultaneously, although in the competitions we did actually do that too. And what you would do, you're gonna have to come up with some complicated visual for this. If you could imagine, right, that this was the line for a half ounce. Sure. Right? And this was the line for the quarter ounce. And your pour, uh, let's say you were going for the quarter ounce, right? But your pour came in between the half ounce and the quarter ounce line, right? You would look at it and try to work out. You try to define that difference in three right. little lines, invisible lines. And each line that you were off your target pour was one point. So in this example, I've just poured a quarter ounce. It's a little over and it's two thirds of the way between the quarter and the half. So that's two points off. Right. You with me? And you're going for golf score. Uh, I don't play golf, so I'm going to have to pass on so that So are one. you going for a low score or a high? You're going for a low score, obviously. The, the less points no, you have. No, because you start the poor test with 100 points and you only lose points. Oh, okay. So you're going, yeah. All right. So you can, I, I understand right? now. Yeah. So after my first pour, I'm now down to 98. Right. right. And the acceptable poor test is a minimum 90. Mm -hmm. Both hands. Right? right. Uh, most people, if you train... A little, it doesn't take very long, but most importantly, if you pour test before every single shift, most people will consistently get up to a 93 or a 94 with both hands. Mm. And you'll have one hand better than the other, blah, blah, blah. That is, by the way, way more accurate than you will ever be able to pour with, with a jigger, even the best jigger in the world. So that's pour testing. And it was used, you had to do it before every shift at Fridays. If you didn't pass... You would have to endure the shame of jiggering all your drinks that night. And you'd be slow too, which was anathema in, you know, one of the busiest bars in, in whatever city you were in. And later on in the UK, they brought something over from the US, which was a compensation system based on commission. So you got up to 12% of the liquor sales during the day and 6% in the evening. And that gave you a huge incentive to sell, right? Because you got, to, but I don't know if this was an original American invention. Our managers wanted us to work for it. And if we didn't get commission, they didn't have to pay it, which obviously made the company more money. So if you didn't pass your poor test, you didn't get commission on that shift either. Mm. 
So commission to me, I mean, there's, there's some models that I'm familiar with and I've spent a limited amount of time front of house and back of house in various service industry settings, right? So I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a, uh, a professional bartender or server or a prep cook by any stretch of the imagination, but I've spent time in these roles. And so, you know, you obviously have your, your, your places that do tip pooling places where you just keep the tips. It seems like the commission side of things is comparatively rare in the space. And like, it seems like a really great way to motivate people. Uh, Is that correct? It does. And I think we're on to talking about tipping and compensation now as well, because, you know, every model except transparently paying people salaries Every other model is flawed, right? So supposing I do a day shift and I sell a thousand bucks worth of liquor. So as well as my salary, as well as any tips I make, I walk out with, um, you know, 120 bucks in commission, right? But there's a whole bunch of people working to set the stage of the bar. There's the people, right? you know, there's the porter who receives the liquor, uh, there's the managers. I'm just the one who gets to stand on the stage. In the same way, there's a whole crew of riggers and electrician and lighting when you go to a rock concert. It's not just the five Rolling Stones on there as well. Sure. Right? So it's not like the Rolling Stones get to take all the ticket money. They have to pay those other people. So there is a flaw to it, and it's the same flaw in a lot of other systems. Like if you go to a bar and... You have a cheeseburger and a martini and it winds up being 40 bucks and you give the bartender 48, right? That's great. But, you know, he didn't cook the burger. He made you the martini. Sure. Right? And then there's another thing to discuss, which is, all right, as far as I'm aware, people are not actually being uh, forced at gunpoint to work as line cooks. I I love the gunpoint thing. There's a whole lot lot going on here, right? And this can be... This will probably be a three-part series of my podcast and yours. Yes, yes. Well, it's, so this is essentially part three. Uh, so let me give you a little bit of a background on what's happened here in the District of Columbia. Um, so we had some legislation that went through towards the end of 2022. Um, it's called Initiative 82. And it that in and of itself is the second round of legislation that was proposed four or so years prior to that, which is something like Initiative 79 or something like that. So essentially what, what people were looking to do is, is to uh, eliminate the tip to minimum wage. Um, I'm glossing over some detail here, but uh, if folks want all of the granular detail, they can, they can check out the episodes. That's of my podcast, the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. That's 249 and 250 if you want you know, the full rundown of that. But in this, in, this, in this kind of attempt to eliminate the tip minimum wage, you know, they were citing a lot of things that were happening at bars that we wouldn't hope to be happening, right? Um, you know, tip theft, uh, tip stealing, wage theft, generally um, harassment, stuff like that. And, you know, these are things that can happen in many workplaces, if not all workplaces when it comes to harassment. It seems like those were some of the big cosmetic drivers that were prompting normal people to look at this legislation and say like, hey, let's let's seriously consider this. So it didn't pass the first time. 
And what happened was the DC council came and said like, listen, okay, like we hear you, we hear your concerns. Let's put some legislation on the books that requires uh, bars and restaurants to actually prove that if someone does not make the minimum wage from just tips, that they have gone in and with their own money brought that person up to the minimum wage. Um, not not the you know couple of dollars minimum wage, but like the fifteen dollar ish minimum wage. And unfortunately, what happened is that there was some crazy. I think it was like a thirty percent, thirty percent of bars and restaurants ever reported it, and I think only fourteen percent of venues in the entire district of columbia were actually completely compliant with that legislation between the time that it was passed and the time when the new initiative 82 legislation came out which is that passed with the the first one i think didn't i think that one had like a like a 55 percent and that wasn't enough uh and then the the second round had like 70 plus percent support and and passed with flying colors so uh so now we're in this situation where over the next four years i think through 2027 or 2028 we are going to incrementally start upping the wages of uh tipped employees until it is until it reaches what the DC regular minimum wage is. And at that point, I'm sure it'll be something like $17. Uh, so in the interim, uh, we have everything that you can imagine, service fees, restaurants and bars doing all kinds of crazy stuff that is not consistent across the city. Uh, people, people putting fees called the initiative 82 fee, where it's like, ah, you suckers, you passed this, this legislation. Now you're going to have to pay for it to people doing what you've described, right? Like you, you, like, what are some of the fee fee titles that you've encountered in your travels? By far, by far, my favorite is culinary. <laughs> which is from uh, Auburn, Alabama, where my kid goes to school. And there's actually a really nice gastropub there. Shout out to the Hound. Great cocktails, great whiskey, great food. And me and my wife were there. We had lunch and I got the check and there's the check. And then there's the tax. And then there's, it just says culinary. And I worked there. It's like 3% of the food. And I'm like, what? Like, you don't let the good chefs cook it if I don't pay this? <laughs> you get yeah. in like Dave, who only knows how to make toast. Culinary is my favorite one, although the one that almost went viral, I think, when I posted it online was from a restaurant in Atlanta Airport, which had, you know, the tip. And then it asked you to pay the tip tax, so the tax on the tip that the employee would have to pay, which was which was fine. And then there was the tip tax tax, which was another dollar. (laughs) To this day, I still don't know what it is. And it's the nickel and diming of America. And nobody, this is what Mark Maynard said when I had him on my podcast. Right, great episode. Uh, You know, everything is a dollar or dollar 52 bucks. No big deal, right? But is it going to the people, Mm -hmm. right? Is it going to those people? This started out years ago. um, I'm sure you know this, Eric. It actually started out in California. Right. They had a a health mandate or something. So this charge started showing up on the uh, on the checks like, you know, healthy California. And it'd be like four or five dollars. You'd be like, well, I definitely want a healthy bartender. So, yeah, but it just if it's got to the stage where Americans are complaining about it, 
Because something else is certainly online, but generally in person too, you cannot have a healthy, honest conversation about tipping in America. You can't. No. Because no. you've got all these bullshit New York, Atlantic, da da da, the guide to tipping. And it's basically, you can summarize the guide to tipping to tip as much as you can at all times or you're a piece of shit. Right. Right. And as long ago as 120 years ago, in his bartender's guide, uh, Harry Johnson, one of the most prominent bartenders of his time, says, you know, tip sufficiently, but not too much. Don't be a sucker. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's coming from the recipient of the tips, right? Like that's, that should yes. tell you something, right? I, I agree. And you know, one of the, so one of the, the, the reasons why I wanted to return and have another conversation about this is because I've been following, you know, I have some friends in, in the industry and obviously I hear their, I hear their side of things, but I'm also following this on, you know, DC forums, right? So like, i.e. Reddit, right? So I'm reading these forums and it is it is mind boggling to me how quickly people have forgotten that they chose to pass this legislation because now people people are online trying to bully and or dox the places that are putting fees on their checks right whether that's whether that's and we can get you know perhaps get into the the weeds about like you know uh, an automatic gratuity right which is essentially like hey we're forcing you to tip 20% which i'm okay with right if you're going to say it's an automatic gratuity i know it's going to the staff right that's your signal to me that this is a gratuity going to the team versus some sort of service fee that will be used in a way to be determined behind closed doors. But, you know, it's it's any anytime anybody sees something besides the food and the tax on on a, a check, you know, they're out to dox somebody or try and, you know, report them for being a bad actor when in reality, like they, you know, 70 percent of people pass this legislation. And, and one thing that I think is also incredibly telling is that there were several news articles published after this legislation went through from the from the night when people were voting and a number of people said something to the effect of yeah I have a son who's in the service industry and he doesn't agree with me, but I felt like I had to vote my conscience or yeah, I really wish existing legislation would be uh, would actually be enforced, but you know, I really want to make sure these people are getting paid. And so when I, when I, I see people saying I have a very good reason not to be voting this way, but I did it anyway, it, it kind of, I guess reveals the the shiftiness of the situation, and um, you know, it kind of is a red flag that things are not as they should be. Well, politics is politics. I think just maybe to interject for any of your foreign listeners, the sure. tip minimum refers to a common thing in America, whereby if you work as a bartender or waiter, somebody who gets tipped, you get a very, very, very low actual minimum wage, like maybe two dollars and fifty cents. And in New York, I think the minimum wage is something like $15 now. So if you work a shift and you, do, let's say it's eight hours, right? At $15 an hour, that'd be $120. So you would expect to take home. So if you work a shift and you don't take home the equivalent, your employer has to make it up to you, right? The flaw with these systems is as a, as a manager, as an owner, you're, you're sticking your nose in the tip pot, right? 
And the contract, most people don't think about how bars and restaurants work, nor do they, right? In the same way, most people don't open up an iPhone to have a look at it. And these days, you don't even open the bonnet of your Tesla. You need a laptop to fix that thing. Yeah. So most people, they have a cheeseburger and a martini at the bar with Dave. And Dave's a fucking cool guy. So the check's 40 bucks and they leave 10. And they're expecting all or most of it to go to Dave. Like maybe he throws a buck or two to the waitress that ran the cheeseburger out, whatever. But they're expecting the bulk of it to go to Dave, right? All this legislation, and there's lots of it, flows into a lot of fundamental questions. And the biggest thing is that, you know, the nice, typically white, typically middle class bartender or pretty host or waiter. Okay, the hosts are in fuck all. Or pretty waiter, you know, could make $100,000 a year or $120,000 a year. Right. And and Juan out the back, who's the best fucking guy on the line, right. uh, is making less than half of that. Yep. You know, arguably working harder, but you know, there's there's a debate there. Whose problem is that to fix? I think we're pushing it onto the guest with all these nickel and dime little charges, because understandably, perhaps owners, nobody wants to put a thirty dollar burger on the menu. Right? But a $20 burger here in New York City, which is not at all unusual, it's going to be $21.70 or $21.80 because it's an 8.85% tax. Okay. Now my $20 burger is $22. That's cool. I'm going to tip 20% on it because the guy was nice, right? So I'm going to put four bucks on there. I'm tipping off the food. So now I'm up to uh, $26, right? So maybe they've got a 3% culinary charge or health for the people, right? So that's going to be 3% of uh, that. And that's going to be something like another 70 cents. So now my $20 burger is 27, right? And I'm a dick if I leave less than four bucks as a tip. So if the burger said $27 final price, I am in. Right. And that's before we even get into the idea, as I mentioned with Mark Maynard, there's a devil's bargain in hospitality. Somebody puts you down and says, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give you all the booze you can drink this evening. And then at the end, we're going to ask you to do some math problems. Like, that's not very hospitable, (laughs) is it? Uh, Oh, yeah. There's also going to be reading (laughs) comprehension because you now have to read every fucking line. Yes. Yes. Well, and I think, uh, you know, there's, you know, going back to the fundamental questions that, that you were referencing there, you know, there, there's a question of, of value. And, you know, I, I, I went back and I, in researching these issues for, for my sort of deep dive episodes, you know, I, I researched the, the history of tipping and, and, you know, where it originated back in the, in the late middle ages. And, and, you know, even the words that were used to refer to tips back then referred to value. They called them, they called it giving the veils back when it was, you know, the, uh, you know, these uh, manor owners who were essentially tipping out, not everybody under them, but, you know, uh, a particular vassal who gave them great service. And, you know, you know, here's, here's, uh, here's a sack of, a sack of coins to go purchase yourself a, you know, a fresh cow or a fresh ox to plow your field or whatever. So you don't Sweet. break your back. Um, 
So it was called giving the veils. And that's, you know, that's from the same root word as valoir in French. So veils, value, valoir, right? Like it's, it, it means value. And, you know, then if you also loop in some of the other words that we use, right, there's host and hospitality referring to sort of like this mutual and or downward power dynamic between, you know, the person who owns the place and the, and the person who comes through the door expecting to be served and, you know, patron, right? The patron, the, the, there's another downward, uh, power dynamic there. Patronus father, right? The person who's giving the money to the server is the, is the, you know, is daddy, right? So there's, there's a lot of, there's even, if you just look at some of the, the bases for these words, you're, you're talking about all these different downward power dynamics. And I think everybody involved feels like they're at the bottom. The bar owners feel like they're at the bottom because they're getting screwed with all this legislation that they didn't sign up for. And it was hard enough before it showed up. The servers feel like they're getting screwed because the patrons are unhappy and the bar owners aren't necessarily giving all of the money that they feel like they earn to them with these, you know, shifty service fees. And of course, you know, we all know why the, why the patrons feel like they're getting screwed because of the the lack of transparency that you just described so eloquently with your $27 burger. So I, I mean, I, I think it does boil down to a question of value, but I, I, I don't know, you, you know, one of the things in, I, one of the things that I do want to throw in before I throw it back to you is that one of the reasons why I'm disappointed in terms of value about why they did things the way they did here in DC is because they suddenly took what was a node, this brilliant force for good in the culinary market of the Mid-Atlantic, influencing what was going on in Maryland and Virginia, Baltimore, Annapolis, Northern Virginia, Fairfax, um, and Alexandria, and turned it into something that was suddenly the odd man out. Because right across the river, right across these tiny little diamond-shaped borders that we have, the DC metropolitan area expands uninterrupted. These are imaginary lines. And so suddenly, after the passing of this legislation, it makes way more sense for somebody who wants to open their next place to do it just outside of those lines where people still want to go out to eat and drink a lot. And so what you've created, what what was once a node and a force for good is now a wound or a cavity. And now it drives people outside to try and find their value. So it's, you know, it's really complicated. And I think if either Maryland or Virginia had already passed a law like this, I might say, hey, this is a great time for DC to jump on board and maybe we can influence the other state to kind of hop on and we can all be doing the same thing. Um, but it just doesn't feel like anybody's getting the upside of anything right now, the, the way currently the DC um, market is set up. Well, you you know it a lot better and I can't really comment on um, DC politics, but the bigger issue is if you increase the minimum wage if you abolish the tip minimum wage and you say okay fuck it minimum wage is minimum wage bartenders got to get 17 dollars an hour waiters got to get 17 dollars an hour one of the problem is actually customers because customers want to tip they have a lot of misconceptions about tipping cornell's been doing this research for 50 years it's been replicated all around the world and the essential thing is that everybody thinks they tip more for good service and less for bad, but the reality is that they don't, right? Their tip is typically within a very narrow band up and down. They always tip. So, you know, we've we've had experiments with the, the, the greatest in our industry, with Danny Meyer here in New York City, 
trying to do service included, whereby uh, no tip is required. It explicitly says it. The, you know, they increased their prices and they had to abandon it. Now, would they have had to abandon it without COVID? Nobody knows. But the problem was everybody wanted to tip. And I even experienced it. I went into 11 Madison Park uh, not long after they had gone to service included. I paid the check and I slid it across and they said, thanks. And I'm like, this feels fucking weird. Right. It really does. I'm not mm. tipping. I am mm-hmm. tipping. It's included in the prices. The prices went up. But interestingly enough, they've reopened, of course, and now they accept tips, but the prices are the same. So essentially mm. what's going to happen is prices are just going to go up. And that's something that people are really talking about now. They're talking about the $23 cocktails. There used to be a handful of $23 cocktails in New York City. Now it's almost becoming a standard. And the $15 cocktails are now 18, you know? So the same is true for plates of food. Eventually, like I know for a fact, New Yorkers are complaining about this now. So when New Yorkers are complaining about it, it's definitely a canary in the coal mine. And we haven't even talked about, you know, free will. In a general sense, you might assume that it is the job of the owner to hire the staff to do the stuff. Right, the the line cooks don't get tipped, so you've got to pay enough that they want to work as line cooks, and the you know the porter doesn't get tipped, so you got to pay him as much as you as you need to, and the bartenders they might expect to make twenty percent of their register right of their ring in tips, so maybe you don't have to pay them that much. There's still a lot of places don't pay them anything at all, one hundred percent off the books, and that's the system. So from a bartender waiter point of view, they're like, hey, I chose this job. I worked at it. I got good at it. My job results in more income for me than the line cook's job does for him. So, you know, what do we do here? Who, right. Whose responsibility is it to fix it? Yeah, no, I, I like them. I like the the notion of free will in here reminds me of, you know, a, a primary tension that you can apply to a lot of political debates, which is, you know, freedom versus security. Right. Uh, and, and to me, you know, what happened here in DC is that people getting into went Geneva, to, by the way, that's what service brilliant. charges I'll, do to me. I, I, I will join you. I'll join you here with some, a, l- a little pop of bourbon, but um, you know, the, the, there's a, a line that I, I love uh, from one of those uh, Supreme Court justices in the 1800s who had three names. Um, and it was, you know, it was essentially, you know, the freedom to swing your fist ends where my nose begins, right? And, and to me, that's a perfect encapsulation of, of freedom versus security. And like to me, what happened in DC was people flocked to security. People were, you know, somebody, you know, somebody rang the alarm and said, wage theft, harassment, everybody assemble. Let's, let's, uh, let's enforce some security. So we don't have this anymore. And people went so hard towards security that what we have is now it's like, well, but did, did you know about all the bartenders and servers who were making way, 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 et cetera, et cetera, more than minimum wage who are now going to be making maybe not right away, but certainly by the time this legislation is completely rolled out in several years, they're not going to be making nearly what they were making. And so in favor of raising your floor up just a couple of dollars, you drop the ceiling on so many people, probably by like potentially like 50 to 70%. 
when all is said and done. Yeah, I and mean, to Thomas me, Sowell, that... the economist, he said, there's no solutions, there's only trade-offs. Sure, sure, yeah. Hello, modern bar cart listeners. It's Jordan Hughes from High Proof Preacher. I wanted to let you know about my new cocktail and product photography e-course called Cocktail Camera 101, and it is now open for new members. The course is all online, it's self-paced, and you have lifetime access to the material. So go to cocktailcamera.com slash 101 to enroll and use the code THEMODERNBARCART, all caps, no spaces, for 75% off enrollment. I hope you check it out and learn how to up your cocktail and bar photography game with me. Cheers. I mean, yeah, the, the free will thing is 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 something that I don't think gets talked about nearly enough because, I, you know, and I'll complicate this and, and throw it back to you. Is it is it okay sometimes to be a servant to feel like you are serving others and that their needs come before yours because to me there's a little germ of that in hospitality in general right to be the servant You know without Italians we basically don't have a bar industry right and I lump Mediterranean people in there right but it's absolutely absurd. Like there's a lunch, an informal private lunch every year. Ooh, what you got there, Eric? That's uh, a little. Um, it's a little a Connecticut bourbon. They have a they have a long-standing bourbon <laughs> history in Connecticut. I was gifted this, so I figured as we close out our bourbon history month, I would join you. And you've got your old Duff Geneva, of course. I right? have some 100% single malt Geneva, which has a far far greater history in America than oh, uh, than whiskey, even. But this, not, <laughs> this is not the Geneva podcast. Um, right. So Italians. Italians. Yeah, there's even a, an informal lunch for all the Italians at Tales of the Cocktail. I got to go. Uh, and why are they so good at it? Why are, you know, why are so many waiters, great waiters, French and Italian and Spanish? And why are comparatively few Irish or German or Danish? Um, it must be the grape be, grain line, right? It is actually, it, I think it is absolutely that. So for people who don't know... If you draw a horizontal line, basically above the top of France, everything above that line is the grain line. We drink grain distillates in groups of adults together. No kids, not many women. You drink from the skull of your vanquished enemy until you fall over and die. Below the line is the grape line. And people drink wine and port and sherry outside on sun dapple courtyards with the men and the women and the little children running around and everybody has a little glass of Amaro after dinner. Mm-hmm. But there is something to that. The Italians are used to cooking for one another. And if you don't know how to cook, you help. And if someone's already helping, you serve. Because you know, tomorrow you could be at Giuseppe's house and he'll be serving you. There's a great line in one of the um, uh, Horowitz books. It's one of the authors who was licensed by Ian Fleming's estate to write, write a Bond book. And he describes a waiter in Rome. He said he chose his profession and executed it with skill and dignity. There, We engage in mass psychosis, <laughs> you could say, with hospitality because they did develop this model. Cheers, by the way. See, I don't think you've taken a sip of your drink yet. Yeah, yeah uh, cheers. Yeah. 11.30. Nothing like it. We say, oh, 
Treat the guest like they are a guest in your own home. Welcome them in. Take their coat, all that. And it's like, okay, that's a lovely metaphor, but I don't give my guests a check at the end of the evening. Right? We have to engage in this myth because it puts you in a mm. nice mindset. But at the end of the day, you are a shop. You're selling food and drinks to a customer who walked in. Right? And if that customer walked into a shop and started doing unacceptable shit, well, you'd kick them out. It's exactly the same right. in a bar or a restaurant. So I think that's something to bear in mind. You are serving. Yes, if I bring a dish from the kitchen and I put it on your table, I am serving you. I am. That's that's the correct term for what I have just done. But I do not right. have to be servile. I am not your servant any more than the Uber driver is my driver. He is for the duration of that whatever 10-minute trip. But that's something that people have a big problem with. And in a lot of Western European and North American worlds, there is this idea that you're either a craven toady, right? Or you're not good at your job. Like Holland was hilarious. I lived in Holland for 17 years. I adore it. I'll be back there in a week or so. I'll make my Geneva there. But most people will say the service kind of sucks, right? And they're not just talking about what I call technical service, which is how fast the food comes out and how quickly the drink is made. They're talking about like the personal service. And a lot of it comes from a fact that it's an extremely egalitarian society and has prided itself on being egalitarian for a long time. You don't see many, you don't see many Lamborghinis or Ferraris there. You see a lot of half million dollar Mercedeses, which look almost identical to $50,000 Mercedes, unless you know what to look. The Dutch, they right. have their money, but they're not into spending it, not into showing off, not into saying, I'm better than you are. Right? DJ Khaled would never have recorded All I Do Is yeah. Win if he was Dutch. All right? Sure. Throwing that in for the younger listeners. Um, <laughs> it's such an egalitarian society that Dutch people who work in bars and restaurants are so terrified of being treated like a servant, they behave rudely to the guest. In advance, <laughs> they get their retaliation in first, you know. <laughs> so uh, it is like being a guest in a Dutch home if you're in a bar or restaurant in Holland, in that they treat you like you were just somebody else. They don't make you feel special. Whereas if you go out to somewhere in America and there's, you know, two bartenders and eight waiters and two food runners and they come out and they fawn over you and everyone's nice, well, you know for a fact somebody in that business is getting fucked over. They are not being paid a living wage. Or they are not earning a living wage, right? It's just, to this day, staggering the amounts of staff that you see because everyone ex is expecting to make tips or suck off the tip titty, if you will, right? Right. And that means you're asking them, in effect, to be partners in the business. You're asking them to accept their income fluctuating uh, if business is up or business is down. And you don't, as an employee, you fundamentally don't sign on for that. The whole point of being an employee is certainty. But people who live off tips mm. are in this quasi zone whereby, well, we'll pay you $2 an hour, but you should be able to make 17 And I'll step in and make it up, and maybe you'll make way more. And if you if you make way more than 17 bucks an hour, um, I'm not going to take the extra. That's, th that's kind of where we are now. And I do think it's very difficult to fix, if not impossible to fix in the U.S., Everybody would like an equitable system where you just get paid a good amount and maybe tips are 5 to 10% on top of that, right? Maybe. 
right? There are people, probably people listening who remember when 10% was a good tip. Right, right. But to do that, you'd have to dismantle the entire system and rebuild it. You can't, and you cannot, in a practical sense, fix the plane while you're flying it. So. Right. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I see more of the um, sort of like elimination of the tip minimum wage legislation probably coming down the road for more states as, as we go here. So, um, you know, it's, it, it feels like it's moving in a direction. Um, not quite sure what, what the consequences of that direction will be, but maybe thinking, you know, it, from what you've just described, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot that can be done from from inside to influence things in a uh, unanimously positive direction. What about from the patron side? What about from the bar goer or restaurant goer side? Are there are there mindsets or things that could be changed or perspectives that could be slightly shifted on that end that might make for you know a better culture? in general? I don't think so. I think right yeah. now the customers are, are getting the sharp end of things. They're getting fucked and, yep. and they know it and they're not happy. Right. And that, that in turn is making them question the whole damn thing. You know, it's making yeah. them question, okay, you know, why can the owner not make enough money off a burger priced at 20 bucks? Why doesn't he just make it 25? And that is disingenuous on the part of owners. They want to have $20 burgers on the menu. They don't want to put it on at 27. Even bearing in mind, knowing that people actually want to tip, right? Because the, the, the taboo of American life is, ooh, not tipping, you know? But there are people listening to this now who will remember when 10% was a good tip. And then it became 15%. And with 15%, you get a high five and a hug. And I remember as recently as 15 years ago, maybe a little longer, 20% was like, oh my God, I got a 20% tip. Like you would go down the street and put your own money in the customer's parking meter if you got a 20% tip. I know somebody who wrote a book right. called 20 Ways to Earn 20%. When 20% was this Valhalla. Right. Now in New York City, for instance, 20% is just the standard. Yep. It's just the yep. standard. So, you know, you can, you can examine other ways to slice the cat, which is um, pooling tips, right? So pooling tips means, uh, depending on how you do it, either uh, the front of house pools all the tips for all the shifts and you get a share based on hours worked. And the nice thing about that is you can take a day shift and know you'll still be okay. Right. And you can skip a night shift and you can take a vacation. That's a that's a very, very good thing. Um, in Europe, they tend to call that the trunk system, like li literally putting everything in a trunk. And right. what's not uncommon is to see uh, every position getting a share. So not just the bartenders and the waiters, but the line cooks and the porters and the food runners. And, you know, your share is based on your position and seniority. And sometimes managers can even be in on that chair. I've seen situations right. like that. So that is a system with a certain degree of transparency. If you get hired, they're like, okay, this is how we're doing the tips. Uh, you'll come in at this position. So you get two shares. And when you've been here longer than a year, you get a third share. And da, 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 And you max out at, I don't know, five shares, something like that. Right, right. 
Right. Well, and that that seems that seems like a way of de-risking it, right? And it also seems like a way of in certain contexts making sure that your team can stay like lean and unbloated because they're all properly motivated. Yeah, I mean we've I think we're slowly coming out of the thing where we can't um hire enough staff. But the disconnect in the USA because front of house staff make so much money from tips, right? So like the equivalent senior bartender, but not head bartender of a world's 50 best bar in New York city is going to make $80,000, right? 70 to $80,000. Uh, that's equivalent to, let's say, uh, 60. Yeah, that's like 50,000 pounds, 55,000 pounds, which is almost double what you would make in London. And New York is not twice as expensive as London by by any means. So are we down the road going to see a drop in, in bartender and waiter income? I certainly hope not. But eventually, we're here for the customer. And if the customer wants transparency but also doesn't want to be nickel and dime to death by all these little charges like he's been laughed at it for this but um president joe biden um has introduced uh i think what he calls a junk fees initiative to get rid mm. of all these little things like you check into a hotel it's 200 bucks a night there's city tax and then they charge you 40 bucks for a resort fee well what the fuck is a resort fee Right, right. <laughs> you know, why not say the hotel's 240 bucks? So this is not unique to hospitality, but it does seem to have centered itself in hospitality. Well, the things that hospitality workers are providing are relatively, and, and I guess, you know, you could lump hotels into that too, roof over your head, but that's fairly far down the hierarchy of needs that's that's around the base so we tend to get touchy about the things that uh you know the, the things that correspond with basic needs for for good reason uh well it seems like it, it seems like we've we've wound ourselves into you know sort of a tangle of complexity and i don't know if it was your bringing up the italians that made me think of this or the fact that i'm that i'm getting a little bit down after all this discussion of uh of the tip minimum wage and and the this uh exploitation of of diners and and bar goers but uh it you know it reminds me of the uh, sort of like the the seminal or concluding passage of a piece of writing called um uh, invisible cities by an italian gentleman named calvino um raised in Cuba. The conceit of the book is that it's a it's a rolling series of conversations between Marco Polo and Kublai Khan. Marco Polo is describing all the cities in the Great Khan's empire. And they start playing this little game because it's it, it becomes evident that Marco Polo is making all these cities up. And and at the end, you know, it becomes a metagame in, in the way that, you know, postmodern philosophy becomes kind of a parody of itself. And the great Khan pulls up a map and he says, well, if what you're telling me is true, then we're all, you know, it's, it, we're all just, everything is tending toward the infernal city, the city of the damned. And everything is, you know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket essentially. And, and Polo's response was, well, if, if, if there is, 
an infernal city. If there is a hell, it's the hell that we create by being together. And if there's a remedy to it, it's to basically find what is not inferno and give it space and let it grow. So I, I don't know that I have, you know, in, in my haste to declare DC as an inferno and as a place where all this stuff is going so terribly wrong, there are still places where I enjoy going out to eat and drink. There are still, you know, bright spots in the landscape. And I don't know, is it, do you feel like it's sufficient to recommend to people that when all of this is getting so terribly complicated, that the simplest solution is to find what you like and, and, and vote with your, with, with your wallet? No, that is. Look, there has never been a better time to, to be alive than now. Honestly, if you think about any country, any demographic of people that are really getting fucked over now, whether you're thinking about trans people or Uyghurs or whatever, tell sure. me the time in the past when they had it better. We are slowly improving every single day. There are, of course, pockets. It is. It particularly sucks to be a Uyghur right now, right? It particularly sucks to be a Rohingya, right? Or somebody fleeing the fucking multiple wars in the Middle East, trying to get into England in a fucking rowboat. It particularly sucks for you right now. But in the long arc of history, or the short arc, just look at the last 50 years. It's amazing. There has never sure. been a better time to be alive. We're improving. However, it is a sign of modern times that the most famous historian who points this, he doesn't espouse the view, he points it out supported by statistics. Stephen Pinker, right, of Harvard, regularly needs bodyguards purely for presenting facts, the poor bastard, right? So this is the world we're in, and we're, we're, you and me, we're deep in this world of bars and restaurants. This is a whole bunch of inside baseball we're talking about here, and we're saying this could be the end of hospitality. But you know what? There's still 30,000 active liquor licenses in New York City. And I go out to a new bar a couple of times a week and I have a great fucking time. In the history of the world, there has never been a better time to drink a cocktail anywhere on the planet than right now. And I would argue there's never been a better time to eat a plate of, you know, food prepared with a lot of love and care and insight. I'm not going to say fine dining, but a lot of love and care and insight, whether you are in Sydney or Bali or Hawaii, obviously bits of Hawaii are a bit fucked right now, or Bogota or wherever. Like this is the apogee. And you're right. People will vote with their wallets. They'll vote with their feet. You know, they'll enjoy the drinks they enjoy in the places that they go to. And we'll learn and adapt like hospitality always adapts to people and mm. generally what tends to happen is when there's a gap in the market when there was no real serious cocktail bar in holland in and i opened my place in 2008 i could see the gap in the market and the market in the gap because everyone i knew passed through amsterdam at least once a year right and they were business people with expense accounts. They were bartenders who wanted a party. They were just regular folks. They all loved Amsterdam, but there was nowhere where they could get a good cocktail. Basically nowhere. One or two places that didn't look promising, but it would still make you a nice cocktail, but not like a cocktail bar. So they would go out and about in Holland and they would drink beer and shots and red wine. And when I went out with those same people in London and New York and Berlin, they would drink 
brambles and espresso martinis and old fashions. So I opened my bar and suddenly, you know, not suddenly, but after a few months, it got really busy because we were serving a need that was missing. And all it takes in any area is for one person to be first. Somebody has to be first. And that can really change the whole industry. It probably applies to um, tipping as well. And just to wrap that up, you yeah. know, as we as we go on to even happier topics, the debate in in Europe or outside the US isn't about tipping. Tipping has typically been somewhere from five to ten percent, and it's not even really a percent. You just you know a few extra coins or a small note. It's not re- it's understood. Like in Holland, your first shift as a barback, you've got full minimum wage, full medical insurance, dental insurance, vision insurance, right up to getting your fucking heart transplant. Uh, you've got a 13th month and all that kind of thing, right? Shift one. So nobody in Holland has ever, no bar owners ever had to start a GoFundMe because his head bartender got knocked off their bicycle by a car, right? Oh, man. So the yeah. tips are just Surprisingly like- Surprisingly and tragically common. Jeez. Yeah. I always think, hey, buddy, if you fucking had your medical insurance for your staff, there, let's let's give the staff a bit of culpability. There is an extremely high level bartender, female bartender here in New York City, um, makes great money. Uh, this is a story from when she was just a full time bartender, didn't really have anything else. Makes great money. And Obamacare came in, if you remember. And that meant you could get affordable health care. And it was around $500 a month, right? Which adds up to $6,000 a year. And I remember talking to her. And she's like, oh, it fucking sucks. We don't have health care. And I'm like, well, you've got Obamacare now. She says, yeah, but I have to pay for that. And I'm like, well, yes, but, you know, you make good money. And she probably made seventy to $80,000 a year. She's like, yeah, but, you know, why would I pay for it? I'm healthy. Like she fundamentally yeah. misunderstood the nature of insurance. If she'd been in London, she would not have made seventy to 80000 She might have made thirty or £35,000. Well, no, probably Let's say £30,000, which would be uh, $40,000, right? But all medical health care covered. So even by paying six grand a year in New York, she would still have been ahead. So, right. But what right. they do, they tend to do there is they have um, service charge. You see service charge on a menu. This is a common thing. You see it in the U.S., they tend to put it on menus in Miami where they get a lot of tourists and people don't tip, but they are a little disingenuous there. A lot of the time you'll see 20% service charge or 20% gratuity, and then they'll leave a line for another tip. And if you're mm-hmm. in a hurry or slight, anyway. But in Europe, it's service charge. And it's very excusable to think, well, that's for the staff. And there's a lot of legislation and a lot of lawsuits happening on mainland Europe and in the UK now because it's been discovered. No, the service charge doesn't go to the staff at all. Or rather, yeah. it goes to the owner of the business who then pays the staff whatever he pays the staff. And the staff are like, well, we don't see that. We get our salary, right? And that's bad from the customer point of view because you've ordered the 20 pound burger or whatever it is, and there's a service charge. You're like, oh, good, that takes care of the staff. But if you talk to the waiter, he's like, well, I don't I don't get that. Hmm. 
Yeah, no, I think I think that you know I I personally would like to see a little bit of rigor in 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 the way that those things get uh, applied, and of course, like I I as I mentioned before, I I like an automatic gratuity because to me that signals boom going to the staff, you know, even just that little bit of transparency. So I think I think if we're talking about things that are not inferno, transparency, pretty nice, pretty nice. If, if there's a if the check says. You know, auto gratuity twenty percent. I'd write on that. One hundred percent of this amount goes to our staff. I don't even care which staff it goes to, frankly. But right. so long as I um at least promise that one hundred percent goes to the staff, in. Yeah. Absolutely. In. Absolutely. Yep. Well, Philip, I, I think we should, as we wrap up here, transition to, to happier things. You know, one of the just uh, the last thing I'll, I'll say on service, you know, the things things that I always think of when I when I think of a, a really great service experience, I always think back to our friend, uh, our mutual friend, Souther, um, and his his uh, directive to his team, which is eye contact glass of water. Uh, and, and to me, like when I think of a service transaction and, uh, you know, being cared for as, as a guest, you know, that, that very simple eye contact glass of water, right. When you first, you know, to, to kick off the transaction to me, that is a simple and beautiful way to do it. But, um, beyond that, are there any general or specific things that you're excited about either in New York that, that you've got going on besides the gin or the spiced rum that, that, that are, uh, giving you energy these days? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hitting the road again. It's happening. I'm mm-hmm. actually flying out from DC of all places on Sunday to uh, Riga in Latvia. We're going to launch ah. old stuff there. It's actually, if you stay in the industry long enough, everything comes back around. It's a liquor import company that's been started in Latvia by a friend of mine who used to make cocktails for me when I went into the American bar at the Savoy, which is great. Oh. And then I'm going to probably fly oh no i'm definitely flying to berlin uh but me and my wife are working there i will be helping run the stand for beluga vodka and this is i think a lovely story um beluga is uh vodka it's about two decades old it's the best-selling premium vodka in russia and with everything that's happened with the war in ukraine the owner, who is Russian, but was already a European citizen, has moved all the production, all the bottling, the headquarters, offices, everything to Europe and has bought the global rights of every country mm. outside Russia to uh, Beluga Vodka. So this will be the first time since the war started in Ukraine that we can you know, proudly present to people the European Beluga Vodka. So that's going to be great. Sure. My wife Monte, is there. it Montenegro? It's being uh, distilled in uh, Latvia and then mm. uh, finished and bottled in Montenegro. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And we're hosting a party on Tuesday with lots of vodka and caviar. And we have seminars on the stand with people like Lucia Montanelli, the global champion from 2020, sorry, 2019, who's the uh, head bartender at the Vesper Bar in the Dorchester in London. And then I am going to fly to Amsterdam 
because Ford's Gin is launching in Holland with our old friend Simon Ford. And they're actually mm -hmm. launching with the same distributor that sells Old Duff there. So it'll be nice to hang out with a lot of people. And then I am going to fly to Tel Aviv and we're going to do some work with Old Duff Geneva and another brand that I had a hand in, uh, La Cantony Vermouth Royale from the G-Vine people. Oh. And then cool. towards the end of October, <laughs> I get to come home <laughs> and then hopefully things will be a little less crazy here. And then on an easier note, uh, I'm really excited about the martini trend that's happening. It's not just in New York. It's begun to spread, but there's never been a better time to drink a martini or a Gibson or any kind of martini that you like in New York City than now. It's Even though they're all $23 and up, they're really excellent. And the creativity, uh, and at the same time, I really admire the people who don't mess with things too much and just make an excellent uh, martini. These are my times because anyone who knows me knows that I love a martini. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant. So um, for our listeners, Philip, who uh, want to keep in touch with you in the digital space and uh, subscribe to your podcast, how do they do that? And uh, where should they look for you so that they can follow your travels on social? Brilliant. So podcast, first, foremost, and most important, uh, the Philip Duff Show. That's Philip with a single L, P-H-I-L-I-P, -I Duff, D for David, U-F-F, -F, on Apple, on Spotify, on whatever platform you use. Please like and subscribe and share and rate. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find me at Philip S. Duff. That's P-H-I-L-I-P-S for Stephen, D-U-F-F. On Twitter, you'll find me at the same address, minus the S, so it's P-H-I-L-I-P-D-U-F-F, -F, and you'll see me under Philip Duff on LinkedIn and Facebook, and if you see me anywhere else, it's probably not me. Like, if you see me on TikTok, that's definitely not me. It's, it's one of uh, one of many Philip Duff impersonators that we've we've got roaming the streets of uh, many countries now since, you, since you're so prolific with your travels. There's, uh, there's another Philip Duff who used to be the chairman of the board at Goldman Sachs. So just to be clear, I am not him. <laughs> uh, well, Philip, again, thank you for spending this time for me and uh, more importantly for being a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Dude, pleasure. Anytime. Cheers to you. Cheers, buddy. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out 
for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This bonus episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, tipping and bar culture insights courtesy of Philip Duff, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a production of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast, copyright 2023.